And if you will open your Bibles this morning, please, to the book of Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, the series is the, fam- the biblical family in an upside-down world. The biblical family in an upside-down world. And I just finished a series where I talked about reality and uh, having a biblical worldview in a crazy world. <laughs> You're beginning to figure out I'm not too high on the world right now. It's crazy and upside down. I think probably uh, even unsaved people would agree with me uh, with what is happening in our world. But today, uh, the subject at hand is the blueprint for marriage and the family. It's been a long time since I preached a message on the family and or a series of messages on the family. And i I know that every family needs to hear what God's Word says about that. Now, I'm aware that if you've been married 10 or 20 years, you probably think you have it all figured out. The truth is, is that people in their 40s and 50s and 60s may need this just as much as the people that are over there in the young marriage department or something. Sometimes we just learn, as Clayton Simmons told me, to camouflage our marital problems and difficulties and parenting problems. And so I hope you will really listen this morning. Open your Bible. You can see the picture of a blueprint on the screen. And this is God's blueprint. God's blueprint for building a biblical family or having a biblical worldview regarding your marriage. Stand with me, if you will, as we read God's Word, Genesis chapter 1, and we begin in verse number 26. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female, the only two sexes, created he them. And God blessed them. And God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the fowl of the air, over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Chapter 2, verse 7. Remember that in, in the creation account, Genesis chapter 1 is a big picture, takes you through the whole creation story. And then you have chapter 2, which is a reiteration of that with different details, more details in it. So in verse 26 of chapter 1, God said, let us make man. Okay, now we go back and find out how he did that. In verse 7 of chapter 2, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. That's his soul. And man became a living soul. And then if you'll go with me to verse 18. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help me for him. And in verse 21, he makes her. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, 
made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, if you don't ever mark another verse, mark this verse. This is God's definitive statement about marriage. No matter what anybody else says, no matter what any book says, no matter what any counselor says or any preacher says, here's what God says makes marriage. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed." Now, while you're standing, go to Matthew chapter 19. Keep your finger there in Genesis, please. Matthew chapter 19. Not that I need to add to the authority of the Genesis passage, but I want to. And Genesis 19, the words of the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 3. Because Christ here confirms and affirms everything that was said in Genesis. So, If you can't believe Genesis, can you believe Jesus? Because he's going to say the same thing, essentially. Chapter 19, verse 3, The Pharisees came unto him, tempting him, and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife, or divorce his wife for every or any cause? He answered and said unto them, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them? Look again, this is the big gender issue today. There are more than two sexes. So we're being told in the media, but the Bible says there are two. He made them male, and he made them female. And then we continue in verse number five. And for this cause, he quotes Genesis 2, 24. For this cause, that's the cause of marriage. Shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife and they shall be one flesh, and wherefore they are no more two or twain, but one flesh. And then what therefore God hath joined together in marriage, let no man put asunder. Thank you, and you may be seated. Can you imagine what it must have been for Adam? God created him, and I don't know whether it was, you know, I don't know all the circumstances. Obviously, I only know what Scripture says. But here's this man standing here, absolutely a perfect specimen of manhood. There's no sin. There's no fall. There's no blemish. Everything in the whole universe is absolutely perfect to the nth degree. I don't know how long it took him, but he stood there amazed at all the beauty of the universe, overwhelmed. Can you imagine how how beautiful it must have been? I mean, the world is a beautiful place now after 6,000 years and scars of sin everywhere, but can you imagine what it was like in those pre-fall days when God had first created the universe? And Adam one day finally looks down and he says, you know what? Who am I? And why am I here? And what's this all about? And so then God comes and has a conversation with him. He has his first meeting with God. God tells him, I want you to reproduce. 
I want you to replenish the earth, and I want you to rule over the earth. I want you to have dominion over the earth. I want you to be the leader of this entire universe, man. You're above and beyond everything else. You're more important than birds and bees and stuff. You are made in my image, and that makes you distinct and different from every living species on the planet. And you know what? I don't want you to be alone anymore, and you surely can't uh, replenish the earth by yourself, so you're going to need a mate. And the Lord put him to sleep and took a rib from his side and made a woman. He made the man from the dust of the earth. He made the woman from the man. I don't have any trouble believing that because I believe verse 1 of chapter 1, if God can create the universe, I have no problem he can make a woman out of a man's side, do you? And despite what you've heard, women or men do not have one less rib today. And so God created this woman, this beautiful creature. Her name Eve means the life giver. And God married them. They had a garden wedding that day. And God's summation of the whole thing is in Genesis 2 and 24. He said, for this cause, the cause of marriage, a man is to leave his father and his mother, and he's to become one flesh with his wife, and you're to live, forget, you're, you're to cleave one to another, and uh, you're to live together throughout your entire life. In our culture today, the people even listening to me this morning, it's very possible that up to 50% of you or more came out of a broken family. Your father left your mother, or your mother left your father, or of mutual consent, they divorced, and you grew up in a home that didn't have a nuclear family, father, mother, children. Very possible at least 50% of you sitting in this auditorium grew up in that circumstance. And it makes you hard, it makes it hard for you even to maybe comprehend some of what I'm talking about because you looked at the other families where there was a mom and a father and kids and you thought, well, I wish we had, I wish I had both a mom and father living in the home with me. And you probably felt like you were a little bit angry that you had been betrayed by somebody because somebody left. They say today that one of the big issues with millennials is they have a hard time trusting anybody because they came out of a broken home. And so if, you, if your mom and dad didn't both stick together and stick with you, it would be very easy for someone to become cynical. And all of us have that deep yearning for a happy home and a loving family. And many of you, my heart goes out to you. You never have experienced that. I am very blessed. I never had a thought about mom and dad not being together. And we grew up, and there was dinner every night together. There was breakfast in the morning my mother provided. Boy, I, if anybody ever grew up in a traditional world, I grew up in that traditional world. And I never even heard mom and dad have a fight. I heard them disagree on some things, but I, I mean, it wasn't a screaming, hollering fight. I never even experienced that. They were godly people. 
The Oxford Dictionary, the most authoritative dictionary, says that there are at least 20 definitions of the word family today, 20, I guess 20 different forms of family. We have the monogamous family, one man, one woman for life. And then we have polygamy, one man and several wives, usually it works like that. And then we have same-sex couples now, unbelievably in the last few years. And we even have the worst perversion of all, group marriages, where we have five or six people, two or three of each sex, and they just live together as man and wife, and it's just a total chaos, a total perversion of everything God ever planned. And then we have the new one that's come out now. I don't know, uh, I know one of the news channels carried a piece on it this week. Newsmax magazine last month had a big article on sologamy. And I thought, what is sologamy? It's S-O-L-O, solo marriage. And there was a picture of a beautiful woman, probably 25, 27 years old, and she's in Washington, D.C., and there's a big cathedral, and there's flowers, and there's candles, and she has on this gorgeous wedding dress, and there's a priest or bishop or somebody standing up there arrayed in ecclesiastical garments, and the girl is standing before him, and she's the only one. There's nobody else there. Solo marriage. And what are the vows like? I pledge to be true to myself. Boy, that's true Americanism today, isn't it? If, I mean, the selfie generation now need just marries themselves. I wondered, how do you get a divorce? <laughs> but, um, you know, it raises a lot of questions, does it not? Marriage is in a mess. It's in absolute chaos in America today. I saw a cartoon. Here's a couple sitting before a marriage counselor. And the counselor says to the couple, you're monogamous, you're heterosexual, and you're faithful to one another. How long have you been practicing this alternative lifestyle? And a traditional marriage is becoming that rare in the country in which we live. So today I want to talk to you about three things. The priority of your marriage. The permanency of your marriage and the purpose of your marriage, okay? The priority of your marriage, first of all. Marriage is priority. It should be the first thing in your life. Or to say it another way, your relationship with your spouse is the most important and the highest priority earthly relationship that you have. Why do I say that your, spouse, your relationship with your spouse is absolutely your first priority? Number one, because it's an exclusive relationship. The Bible says one man, one woman, everyone else is excluded. Nobody else gets to interfere. That's why the in-laws have got to be very, very careful and keep their distance. It is an exclusive relationship one man and one woman become one flesh, and God's design is that they live together as long as they live. In other words, God's math is different than man's math. Do you know what God's math is? One plus one equals one. That's God's math. One man 
plus one woman equals one flesh. That's God's way of looking at marriage. And so it's our most exclusive relationship. Nobody else is to get involved in that circle of two people there that are learning to become one. And so he said, for this cause, marriage, you're to leave your father and mother, and you're to cleave unto your wife. Leave and cleave. Now, I think of it like this. I tried to think, how could I illustrate it? And I, and I, I think I can make my point by having you look at the screen. And I want to show you two circles, and they represent a man and a woman. And if you notice, the circles just touch there at the periphery. They touch at the edge. And this is uh, why there's a courtship going on. This is what you are really on day one when you get married. You may think it, it's not, but I can promise you that's, that's the day you stand at the marriage altar. Now, life goes on, and you work at your marriage, and you're trying to become what the Bible says for you to become as a Christian couple. So you sort of merge together, and you become like those circles there. You're, there there's a lot of overlap in your life. You're becoming one. And then you go through the years, and you're, you're working on your marriage, and your ultimate goal is to totally merge together until where you're one flesh. You've become one in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's your priority. Somebody defined intimacy between an, a man and a woman with, in this way, and I really like this definition. Intimacy is when a man and a woman in marriage, they can be completely known by one another and still be loved. I can be completely known by my wife. I can completely know my wife, and yet we can love each other. We see our warts. We see our blemishes. We see our weaknesses, and we see our strengths and good points as well. And through the years, we've learned to work together, and God has helped us to grow in His grace and in our marriage. And it ought, your mar- you ought to be able to say about your marriage, it gets sweeter as the years go by, not stormier as the years go by, but sweeter as the years go by. Now, if that be true, now I'm going to quit teaching and go to preaching a little bit here. If that be true, then that means that the first and most important relationship is the husband and wife and not the children. Children are second in priority to your spouse. I don't think y'all believe that in large numbers here. But it is the truth of what the Bible teaches, ladies and gentlemen. A young woman comes to me sometime, several years ago, but I'll never forget it. She said, Pastor, we're starting our family. They've been married for two or three years. Pastor, we're starting our family. Do you know what I said to her? No, you are a family. See, we got this idea, we don't don't even have a family unless we have children. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. You are a family. Husband and wife is a family. Now, God adds his blessing with little children, and he expands the family, makes it a bigger family, but no, you're the family. And oh, if there's one thing today, I see it repeated over and over as a pastor and as a president of a large Christian school. I see it over and over, and that's this idea of the child-centered family, 
where the child now dominates everything to the point that the spouses suffer in their relationship. Their focus is not even on the marriage. The focus is always on the kids. The kids come first in everything. And you see, in our culture today, we're being told that's just being a good parent. Let me give you a quotable quote. You can write this down. This is worth preserving in the back of your Bible. The best way to be a good father to your children is to be a good husband to their mother. The best way for you to be a good mother to your children is to be a good wife to their father. Because when that husband and wife are one flesh, when they really have become what the Bible talks about in a marriage relationship, believe me, those children are going to have such security and there's going to be such strength in that home. Those children are going to flourish in that relationship 10,000 times more than if you make the children the center of everything. It just overwhelms me the change that I've seen in uh, the philosophy of parenting today. John Roseman has written about it. Everybody that's a biblically thinking uh, person in that area has written about it. The child-centered home. We think we're good parents by making the child the center of everything. And the relationship between husband and wife begins to deteriorate. They have nothing in common. And here's the problem. Now listen to me. I'm telling you the truth. Even secular authorities are beginning to recognize this, that what that's creating is a very narcissistic, very self-focused generation of children and young people that are growing up now, and all their life, every single whim has been catered to, and then they come to adulthood, and they don't even know how to function. It's tragic. We're crippling our children. We call them helicopter moms, always hovering over the kids, overprotective. Honey, you got to wear your helmet to sit in your high chair. We want to take care of our children. Wear it, put on your helmet, you've got to go to the bathroom. Something might happen. Oh, 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 oh. And we're robbing them of their independence. Remember this, the goal of a family is to rear children who will marry a Christian, leave home, and establish a godly Christian home, and pass the flame of Christianity on to the next generation. That's the goal. And don't ever forget what you're aiming for. All the other stuff is peripheral. The ball games and, and the music lessons and the Christian school and the SATs and the social life. Yeah, that, that, that has its place. But listen to me, ladies and gentlemen. Your goal is to raise a child who will not break your heart and who will someday grow up and establish another Christian home and the flame of Christianity will be preserved one more generation. That's the goal of parenting. And so the priority relationship is I must take care of my spouse first. And if I do, the kids will just live in the overflow, the blessing of that wonderful relationship that we have. The priority of marriage. Number two, I want you to notice with me the permanence of marriage. The permanence of marriage. Marriage is a lifelong covenant between a man, a woman, and God. I take you to be my husband and wife and through poverty and 
all the different things we say at the marriage ceremony. I said to my wife, will you love me when I'm old and gray? She said, honey, I sure do. (laughs) We've stuck it out now for a long time together. Marriage is our most permanent earthly relationship. Above the parents, leave the parents. Above the children, yeah, cleave unto each other. Make that core marriage covenant central to everything. Genesis 2.24 uses that word cleave. And I've told you before what it means. It has the idea of to weld or to glue two separate things together. The carpenter out there taking the two two-befores, he's going to make a header over a door or something where he needs extra strength. And he takes his glue and he runs it up and down one side, or the sides of the two-befores. And then after putting them together and gluing them together, he takes his nail gun and he nails them again. They're so put together, they're so welded together that you tear them before they will come apart. That's the analogy. Marriage is permanent. Cleave unto your wife. Cleave unto your husband. Do you know what God says about divorce in our culture today? It's become so controverted. Turn with me the book of Malachi, if you will. Malachi, right before the book of, of uh, Matthew here, the last book of the Old Testament. And God is addressing the people of Israel, and they've, made, they, they've become very permissive in their marriage vows. And so now in Israel, divorce has become very, very common. And I want you to read this. I take the time to have you turn in the Scripture to see it for yourself. Because in Malachi chapter number 2 and verse number 16, For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth putting away. He hateth putting away. Now, what does he mean, putting away? Well, you look that up, and that term, putting away, is divorce. God said, I hate divorce. Even when it might be called for, it's still a tragedy, a terrible, terrible thing. People pay the consequences of it. God, not a Baptist preacher. God said, I hate divorce. And if there's any way that there can be forgiveness and reconciliation, it's far, far better than a divorce. God hates divorce. And so should you as Christians. We should love what God loves, and we should hate what God hates. God hates evil. The book of Psalms says, ye that love the Lord hate evil then. And God hates divorce. And I'm not saying that a divorce is never called for because Christ himself made a provision for it, of course. But I'm telling you, enter into your marriage with the idea we are married for life. This is a lifelong, monogamous, man and woman relationship. If your attitude is divorce is an option, then you're already in trouble. If divorce in your mind is an option, well, if things don't work out, you can always get a divorce. No, wait a minute. You're thinking wrong. You're not thinking biblically. You don't have a biblical worldview. Divorce is 
is not an option. It is absolutely the last possible thing that you want to do. Somebody wrote, we, once we were a nation of parents with 2.5 children. Now, we're a nation of children with 2.5 parents. The divorce epidemic. For a long time, during the 70s and 80s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, we had a, 90%, or a 50% divorce rate, plus, 50, over 50, sometimes 60, some places. Out on the West Coast, it's even far higher than that. Now, it's gone down a little bit, but then there's a compensating factor in those statistics. It's that so many couples today move in together, and there's just no, there's no divorce. They live together for a while, and then they move out. And so it's not recorded statistically as a divorce. I never have worried about uh, Norma leaving me or me leaving her. I figured it all out real early on. I told her when we got married, I said, honey, if you leave me, I'm going with you. (laughs) And so, you know, that settles that, right? Everything is not as complex as people make it sometimes. If you leave, I'm right with you. I mean, you married me, we're one, and we're going to hang, it, hang together throughout our life. And it's been more than 50 years now. How do you make a marriage last? I've had several people since we had our little celebration that day back in February. And people have come up to me like, that's something very special. And I mean, it is. I'm not minimizing it, but I just never, didn't think there was any option, as I said. You know, big deal. If you live long enough, you're going to celebrate the 50th. People come up to me, Pastor, what's the secret for being married for 50 years to your wife? And, and they act like I'm going to give them some choice bit of, uh, bit of wisdom. The only thing I can think of is this. Treat her after you get married like you did before you got married. Same thing that won her heart will keep her heart. I'm talking about man versus, I can flip it around You wives, you treat him after you get married just like you did before you got married. Before you went on a date, you spent an hour and a half putting on your makeup. Now you've been married 20 years, and you come out looking like the wreck of the Hesperus. And you wonder why the marriage bloom is fading, right? You care as much about your appearance after you get married as you did before you got married, and you you probably keep things going. And man, before marriage, we, uh, you know, we're dating our wife, and she's my girlfriend. I'm opening the car and pulling out a little carpet and dusting it off and putting it down for her to get in. Man, I mean, uh, roses and perfume and uh, where do you want to go and what do you want to do? And then all that just fades away over the years. Keep on doing the same thing you did to win the heart of your wife or husband. Keep on doing it from now on. Make it a permanent part of your life. Court her. Date her. Norman and I usually have a date night on Friday night. And we take her out, and, and I take her out. I said, we take her out. 
Sound like one of those new modern invention marriages, huh? I take her out, and you know what? I try to open the door, and I try to do some things that I don't do the rest of the time. (laughs) That's not entirely true, but don't ask her about it. You know, I was was talking to the staff, and I said, I'm going to preach a series on marriage. Now, you guys are out there close to people, and you're talking to people. What is the greatest single thing that the people need for me to preach to them? How can I help the people of our church? And when I preach on marriage. And, I, and some of the staff gave me some suggestions. Clayton Simmons told me, he said, if in all the years of counseling, and Clayton is an excellent counselor, and he, he said, in all the years of counseling, there's one thing that if I could get couples to do, we could kill 90% of these marriage problems that we have. He said, if they would think of their marriage like a bank, And every day, as a husband or a wife, I'm either putting deposits into the bank and building up our riches, or I'm making withdrawals and making us poorer as a a couple, our marriage poorer. Now, the, the deposits are little kindnesses. Deposits are loving acts. I make a deposit into my wife's emotional bank account when I, when I treat her with kindness and love and consideration and thoughtfulness. And when I'm short or gruff or impatient or unkind or neglect even speaking to her, then I'm making a withdrawal. And so the account is constantly moving up and down. Some days I got a balance there. And after several days of being neglectful, I got a deficit, man. I've got a hot check. Think of your marriage as being a bank account. And every activity and every deed and every word is either a deposit or it's a withdrawal. And you keep the balance high, then the marriage will be healthy. So we have the priority of marriage. We have the permanence of marriage. Keeping the bank account healthy. Doing the things that cause us to fall in love with each other, continue to do those things. And the third thing is the purpose of marriage. Look in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18 again. The first, first purpose is companionship. It is not good for a man to be alone. The first reason you get married is companionship. You know, your mate ought to be your best friend. Norma is my best friend. She's my lover. She's my sweetheart. She's my partner. And she's my friend. One other thing, and I remember years ago, I heard a man named Joseph Tan. I talk about Joseph often. I so love Joseph Joseph preached on marriage, and he was talking to men. And I promise you, you've never heard this, so sit up and get a hold of this. He said, men, have you ever considered your wife is God's daughter? Your wife is God's daughter. You are God's son as a Christian. 
Now, God doesn't want his daughter mistreated. If you will remember your wife as God's daughter, you will treat her in a very special way. She's the daughter of the creator of this universe. She is, in that sense, a princess. And you treat her like that. That's what it means to husbands to love your wives. And you know, now that Norm and I have lived together so long, I want to say that I don't, I don't talk a lot about this kind of thing. I, I feel a little uncomfortable when I'm doing it, frankly. I'm not a guy that gets up and talks a lot about these kinds of things. But living with my wife has made me a better man. You know what? The Bible said in Proverbs 31, where we were last week, that she will do him good all of his days. That ideal woman there. I tell you, much of what I am is because of my wife, because of her love, because of her patience, because she shares with me things, and she doesn't, she's not a preacher. She doesn't stab me. She just suggests. She's real sensitive about my feelings, about things sometimes, but she's, I know when she's correcting me. And you know what? Both of us have grown. I'd like to think I've made a big difference in her. And that's God put us together as companions and me to build her up and she to build me up. You know, I don't have to go somewhere. I don't have to go to an event and buy tickets and do all that stuff. I'm, among other things, too chinchy for that. You know what the highlight of my day is? when I can leave the office and the burdens and cares of the ministry and I can go to my home and walk in the door, put on my casual clothes, because I sleep in a suit, of course, you know that. <laughs> and um, I can go home and I can sit down and there's a wonderful dinner that my wife has prepared. And we sit there and we can talk for a few minutes. And you know what? I don't need any dancing girls and movies and shows. and I don't need anything else. I just like to be with her. I'd rather be with her than anybody I know. I don't feel offended, but I just would. In fact, I'd say to you young people, don't marry anybody you don't like. <laughs> now, you think I'm kidding, they have people come in, they've been married three years, and say, I used to like him, but I don't even like him anymore. Don't marry. Simple advice. Everybody get this. It's, it's real deep. Don't marry anybody you don't like. By the way, young people, that's the danger of sex before marriage and too much physical contact. You see, that sexual desire is so powerful, so overwhelming, that once you get into that, it dominates everything. You don't want to 10 years from now say, I love him in bed, but I despise him everywhere else. No, that'll dominate. Don't marry anybody you don't like. That's why you stay pure. That's why you save yourself for marriage. First purpose of marriage is companionship, and second purpose of marriage is to reproduce. Genesis 1 and 28, be fruitful 
multiply, replenish the earth. Turn with me over to the book of Psalms. Boy, if all America would learn this passage here. Psalm number 127. This is God's attitude toward children. And the purpose of marriage is companionship, somebody to be with you throughout life. And then secondly, Psalm 127, to have children. That's God's way of reproducing the species, of keeping the race alive, if you will. Psalm 127 in verse number 3. Lo, children are a heritage of the Lord. And the fruit of the womb is his reward. You see, they're a blessing. As arrows in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. And I'll talk to you in weeks to come about what that means. But in verse 5, happy is the man that has his quiver full of them. In other words, God is encouraging you to have children, to have as many children as you can take care of. A tragic thing they're telling us, the, the, the government, the sociologists, America's declining birth rate is at a danger point. We are not able to even provide and replace the population that we have right now. That's one of the things that's driving illegal immigration. We're not having enough babies. Baptist? Because in so many cases, we've chosen affluence over, we, over a family. We've, we've said, oh, one's enough or whatever. And I, I don't want to jump on anybody or get too personal, but I want to tell you, we need to have the whole nation. The birth rate is so low, the authorities now are saying we are in danger of declining as a society. And once God gives us those little children to train them up for him. Last week I quoted Luke 2 and 52, and it says, Jesus increased in wisdom. That's knowledge, the ability to apply knowledge. And so education is vital. Jesus increased in wisdom, and then he increased in stature, physical growth, And then Jesus increased in favor with God, spiritual life. And Jesus increased in favor with man, a socially well-adjusted person who could meet people and relate to people and talk to people. And if you will focus on rearing children who are growing physically and knowledge, you're taking their education seriously, You're teaching them social skills, how to relate. You're teaching them to love the Lord. Then you'll be rearing children in the way that the Bible says to. I asked the staff for help. Chris said, among teenagers, the one thing I consistently see and hear more than any is the teenagers even tell me, I wish my daddy would take the spiritual leadership in our home. My mama is the leader when it comes to family devotions or talking to us about the issues. Where are the men that will stand up and say, you know what? I am the spiritual leader. 
I am the one God has entrusted with the welfare of my child and his training. Men, I challenge you to be that leader. Here's a reality. No matter how good a marriage you may have on this earth, it's going to end. You know, reaching my point in life, you begin to know your own mortality. And one of the dreaded things that I think about sometimes is that someday I will stand and look down into the face of my wife in a coffin. I mean, ten times over, I'd rather that she be bending over looking at me than thinking that I would be looking at her. But no matter how good it's been in this life, it's going to end. There'll come a day when my marriage is over, and it's over when it's over. Because Jesus said there's not going to be marriage in heaven, didn't he? There'll be no marriages in heaven. Why did he say that? Well, there's no need to reproduce in heaven. Heaven will be people with people of all the ages. There'll be plenty of population in heaven. And secondly, not only is there no need to reproduce in heaven, but there won't be room for other relationships because Jesus will be our entire focus in heaven. The whole point is we will love him with all of our heart, our soul, and our mind. So your marriage, even though it's earth's longest lasting and most important relationship, it's for the earth. It's not for eternity. Eternity is a long time. And when I preach on marriage, I always regret I wasn't able to preach more of the gospel because could it be that someone is here today and they're lost and they need the Savior? The best thing I could think of to say to you this morning, I believe it's from the Lord, is that eternity is a long, long time. And the old prophet Amos said, prepare to meet your God. And no matter how good your earthly marriage, you need to have that heavenly relationship intact. Do you know you're saved? Do you know that your sins are forgiven? Do you know that when the big bell rings and your soul is called into eternity, that you're ready to meet your maker? And if you don't, we'll give a brief invitation for that. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed.